Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, Jeff. Hello. Everything's going good? Going well. Yep, going pretty well. How about you? Uh, everything's good. Good, good. I, I read through Campbell, and I read through him again, but oh, good to see you, Jonathan. How are you doing, Jeff, with Campbell? Uh, good. Lo- loving it, but oh, it's dense. It's so specific and trying to keep the keep track of, okay, where are we right now? <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> Throughout the book, he's working a particular logic. You kind of have to keep in mind what it is we're refuting and what it is we're arguing. So, When he does this thing every every once in a while where he, he sort of kicks it down the, kicks the can down, like he'll say, you know, we're going to talk about this is really important for chapter 10. And then he kicks it down the road. He said, we'll talk about that later. And I'm like, I, I just want to know, can we talk about it just a little bit now? Hi, Jonathan. Yeah. How you doing, Jim? Everything good? Yeah, doing well. Thank you. I was just editing an old uh, class, Jim, in which you shine. You had just made a trip down to Florida or something. And Yeah. I'll try to repeat that performance sometime in the next <laughs> four or five weeks. Okay. How you doing, Matt? Well, how are you doing? Very good, very good. Your lawyering must be uh, intruding on your life. It's been a busy time. Everyone sends their kids back to school in September and realizes they're going to die and needs an estate plan. So <laughs> I see. <laughs> Maybe it's just the the autumnal season, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> Death is lurking tonight. I'm going to try to do two things at once. I want to eventually get back to chapter three, but I think throughout, and I wanted to begin with this, what is at stake? And I'm saying this because I didn't, I think it's there, but Campbell does not unfold this. And I think we need to hit it and unfold it in an in-depth fashion, you know, and that is that in understanding righteousness and especially the term faith, for Paul, and this is certainly the case, you know, by the time we get to chapter four, but even before chapter four, that his definition of faith entails the meaning of Christianity. And what is at stake then in not just the Judaizing false teacher, but in justification theory is, I think, the meaning of meaning. Because that's really what we're talking about, right? It is through faith that we come to understanding per se. That is, I think the way in which we define faith is going to be our understanding of how we conceive uh, what we think is meaningful. I'm not a Lonergan person, but if we were thinking in terms of Lonerganian understanding, Faith is the means to insight in a Pauline understanding. And where faith is defined by the law, and law here, as I've defined it, and I think most of you are familiar with, is any symbolic order or any static structure. But certainly where, you know, in terms of 
justification theory, faith is connected or defined by or underwritten by the law, the result will be propositionalism, dogmatics, or even an, an imagined stable tradition, or positive theology, not to in any way deny positive theology, a role, but positive theology then, or the tradition, or the what has been received, will simply become definitive, that that becomes determinative. And if that's determinative, we've shifted up our understanding of understanding. In other words, the very foundation of this thing has moved from a personal apprehension of meaning to a objective understanding. And so meaning in this system, rather than being personal and dynamic, as I think it is, and that will become clear as we move through especially chapter 4, but on clear on you know, to chapter 7 and 8, rather than it being personal, dynamic, a continually engaging of an unfolding reality. In other words, reality itself is not static, I think, in Paul's conception, but it is made static if the law is definitive, if propositions are the foundation. It will become impersonal and it will become objective. And so Christianity, and I think this is ultimately what's at stake, the, the contention not just with the false teacher, but I think in as much as justification theory has bought into the notion that the law is foundational, that it overlaps with what the false teacher is doing. And I'm not, in no way equating those two things, but I think on this point that we end up with a misunderstanding of Christianity. So meaning it is reduced, I think, for many Christians who have bought into justification theory to grasping the system. Understanding is not concerned with personal reality. And I suppose those of you who have been through seminary, we've all encountered those professors who, who really they have their system and all they have to do is share the system with you. And once you get the system, teaching's finished. You know, uh, let's talk about football now. In other words, there is just a lack of engagement with reality in this justification theory that explains, I mean, I think that's, that is Calvinism, but I think it's Lutheranism or any system, and not necessarily so, but I think in as much as it buys into justification theory, that you just grasp the system and that's the end of it. And so the rather than faith being a, you know an ever-deepening engagement with reality, with God, with the world, with ourselves, you know, that's what it's all about. That's that's the whole point of faith, is that it's a narrative, that it's a journey that there is a deep, in other words, it's, it's cognitive, it's inclusive of the mind. I mean, that's really what we're talking about, is that with Christianity, there is a focus on the mind of a person. That may sound strange, 
But I think that is, in fact, what is missing if we focus on a system. And so the justification theory arising with the Protestant Reformation, it arises, of course, within a nominalist conception of the universe and God. But what I've just described to you is a faith, and by faith here, I think we're saying a meaning system, which is itself nominalist. That is, it's satisfied with a kind of impersonal, static, nominalist faith. I think this is at what's at stake in the book of Romans. First of all, in Paul's argument with the teacher, and of course, if we're going to fuse that understanding with Paul's understanding, I'm afraid then we've also lost faith as the meaning system, potentially the entry point into meaning. Uh, faith is a coherent, you know, that is the way in which we experience the coherence of things, the dynamic personal engagement, first of all, with the reality of God, and then in conjunction with the reality of God. And all of this, of course, is inclusive of our taking, apprehending that, and then our perception of the world. And so faith, rightly understood, I think, is, you know, this is the argument with foundationalism, Cartesian foundationalism, or with modernism, what is sometimes called ontotheology, or a focus on metaphysics. And of course, then uh, uh, they're collapsed. So supposedly, you know, we've been through this modern, postmodern, I'm not, I'm never quite sure the reality, you know, is, is it true that modernism has collapsed in the manner that postmodernism describes it? I, I don't know if that's the case, but both foundationalism and ontotheology should collapse. In other words, I think that, that as Christians, in that sense, and only in that sense, we are, we should be postmodernist in that we are certainly eager to deconstruct the notion that faith is dependent upon you know some sort of certain knowledge faith in scripture does not presume that sort of foundation the foundation of is christ and the notion that there's sure and certain knowledge which that's just another way of saying what ontotheology or foundationalism is, there is all there is also the sense that we may not have felt it, but but it's not very long ago, you know, certainly in the 13th century, that people conceived of culture itself as a kind of stable, singular thing. That a classicist understanding of culture, or if we want to think in biblical terms. Think of Abraham, who is, you know, chapter 12, the story of Abraham, is his departure from Babel, chapter 11. You know, what is Babel? Well, it's one thing. It's mono, it's a monocultural, you know, monolinguistic, mono everything. It, it's a, uh, the, the meaning in that understanding is to be found in the singularity in in the culture itself is that's not the way it's being put but 
you know, in that tower that holds everything together. Abraham's departure itself creates a plurality. Here is the founding of an alternative culture, really, is, is what's taking place. Of course, in the story of Abraham, that this is going to be Paul's illustration, his explanation of, you know, the conclusion to chapter 3, explaining what faith is and what righteousness is. That, first of all, with Abraham, this is his personal narrative. It's his personal dimension. And maybe a little bit we need to talk about what it means that Abraham is the prototype of faith. I think he is, but we need to be clear on what we mean by that. I don't think we can imitate either Christ or Abraham. I, let me finish my thought here. That is, we can't do what he did any more than we can do what Christ did. Is the imitation there? Yeah, I think imitation is a key notion in the New Testament. We actually did that in Ephesians. Paul says, be imitators of God. So I'm not I'm not dismissing that, but imitation and, and participation are kind of a singular concept for Paul. It's not just that we emulate, but we participate. And so the picture, I think, of Abraham as the prototype of faith, you know, he leaves his home, his family, his culture, even though this is not a word that existed, he's departing from a unified understanding and he's going into an unknown country. I assume that that is the situation in which we always find ourselves, that we leave a kind of notion of a, of a singular understanding of culture or a singular notion of religion. And of course, at Babel, they were presuming through that kind of cultural understanding to attain to the heavens. Another way of saying it, their knowledge was absolute and certain. Uh, it was concrete, literally, <laughs> or brick, and they were building on that foundation. I used to do a article, and I think I put it up in Canvas by William Frazier. I really like William Frazier's comparison. Have any of you looked at that? But he does this wonderful comparison between Genesis 11 and Genesis 12. And, of course, what's happening in Genesis 11 they would make their name great in and through the Tower of Babel. Chapter 12, God says to Abraham, I will make your name great. And of course, what's at stake in, the, in your name enduring is the, the resistance. You know, they're resisting death. The, they're resisting mortality in, in and through this immortal, indestructible tower. And I think that's the significance of Isaac being given to Abraham. And so Abraham, his departure, isn't this a description, his departure from Babel, isn't this always a description of the faith journey? Isn't it always, at least in part, a description of this personal encounter with God? I'm afraid that's what we miss in justification theory. It's all impersonal. It really has, it, it pertains to the law. And by the way, in Babel, there are no, you know, distinguishable persons. And with Abraham, then, and I'll say this, if you want to disagree, let me know. There's nothing that is certain, right? There is nothing permanent. There is nothing concrete. 
in his life's journey. You know, especially the first 25 years, you know, he has the promise from God and he negotiates everything then on the basis of that promise, most particularly in the way that Frazier describes it. He's negotiating the reality of death. This is the way Paul puts it in Romans 4, that being as good as dead, being over a hundred years old, and Sarah's womb being dead. The reality that Abraham is negotiating is the reality that we're all negotiating. And that's why chapter 4 is going to end on the note of resurrection faith. Abraham's faith is resurrection faith. And so the promise from God, you know, is his meaning system. It is his means of, we could, triangulating uh, between him, God, the reality of God, his own mortality, and the hope for a son. Isn't that a description of the way that faith functions for all of us? Think in terms of Romans 7 and Romans 8. There is the tripartite, you know, picture. First of all, with the absence of God, and then in chapter 7, a triangulation in the Trinity, that we are in the place of the Son, who, you know, I think this is the, the significance here with Abraham. Who is, or what is the object of Abraham's faith, as we're talking about this? This is Campbell actually does quite a bit with this. And that is, it's not Jesus, obviously. But it's God, God the Father. But of course, the point is that as a Christian, God is the object of our faith, right? Not Christ. Christ is in the subject position. And we then occupy the subject position with Christ in his faithfulness. You know, we participate in his faithfulness in his understanding of, of God. You know, Abraham's understanding of the world, I think, depends upon his interp the interpretive lens of the promise. This is, he's reconceiving his home, his country, his family, his identity. And of course, here you all know that really we've passed from talking about faith in, in the terms of a belief system, believing some facts, that in no way captures the story of Abraham, but of course it in no way captures Christian faith. We're not talking about faith in that sense. We're talking about faithfulness. And so it endures over time through hardship in the life of Abraham. But of course, that the life of Abraham is a type of Christ. And that's ultimately what we're describing with Abraham, is that like Christ, he faces death, and due to his faithfulness, Christ is the faithful one, then receives resurrection. Now, uh, moving back to Abraham, there is a kind of, in, in this tension between faith and certainty, which is non-existent, you know, there is, there is, I've claimed that faith gives rise to an intelligibility in the understanding that I'm describing that will be lost in justification theory. And so we need to say, well, what do we mean by intelligibility, you know, understanding? 
And of course, for Abraham and Sarah, the intelligible part was laughable. I don't know. We Most of us are aware that Sarah laughed, but everybody's aware that Abraham fell down laughing too, right? And that's why the, the boy is named He Who Laughs, the meaning of the name Isaac. The laughter then, in their understanding, is not simply a cynical or disbelieving laughter, but they memorialize the laughter, I think, in the name of Isaac, who is a type of Christ, that this encounter, you know, with this kind of unbelievable understanding, they're not, the laughter is not simply, it's not dismissive. I mean, I, I think we'd usually hear, oh, they didn't believe well, that's not exactly it. It's just that this thing didn't make sense to them. It's not evident that how this could work out. And so they're saying yes to God's promise, but that doesn't mean that they're saying yes to their own. That mean doesn't mean that their comprehension, that there's an admitted lack of comprehension. I think that's something we have to take into account, that faith is a yes to God, to the promises that we have in Christ. The second part of that, the the intelligible comprehension, is something that in the faith journey is a gradually apprehended reality. And I think that's why it's faith, right? Otherwise, it wouldn't be faith. And so at, f at first, I'll say this and, and define it, faith is not reasonable. And what I mean by that, it does not accord with experience, at least on the surface. It appears to contradict the way things are. But I'll add a footnote. I don't think it's internally contradictory. And so Paul describes that even Abraham had resurrection faith, which means he has what is an intelligible vision of how this might work. But not in any normal sense of rationality, but it's not contradictory. And so I think that's the two things. Who was it, Huckleberry Finn or Mark, uh, or was it Tom Sawyer? You know, faith is believing two things that we know ain't true. But what we don't know, what we can't necessarily conceive is the how of it, uh, of God's, you know, Abraham couldn't understand how God could deliver a child. I think a good way of describing is this is using the concept of a heuristic so that it's much like when you ask a question, your question and assume the ability to ask a question already assumes an intelligible answer. But when you seek to answer a question, you don't begin randomly. Uh, this is actually sort of a mystery to some of us. You don't just begin randomly searching through all of the knowledge in the world you work with a certain set of uh, maybe minor questions or points that lead you from question to answer. Faith heuristically assumes participation in the life of God, salvation, however you want to put that. So it's not just a blind grasp. Faith isn't just a blind grasping at eternal life. Uh, and I, so I think that it is, it's reasonable in that sense, but only heuristically so in the sense that faith itself does not grasp uh, the fullness of God. So saying one has faith isn't to comprehend all there is to know about God or even what it means to share that life of God, but it does at least heuristically assume that the intelligibility of your life and all things are going to be found in God.
That's good. I like, I like that. Jonathan, I'm assuming that you're appeal, uh, appealing to a resource here that I don't have, but I may be sounding very similar to, and that's Bernard Lonergan. Sure. Well, yeah, sure. So um, it's, I, mean, I think that's, that's what Lonergan finds in Aquinas. And I, I was thinking about it because of what was Jeff's question earlier about how do you read, you know, Aquinas actually has some readings on Romans that are pointed towards that direction. Yeah. In other words, he doesn't read it in terms of, he doesn't think anything about justification theory. That's not a big deal, but he's thinking about it more in terms of grace free will and theosis, deification. And I think that is the significance, that is the genius, as I understand it, of Bernard Lonergan. The conversation we're having right now is, I think we lost meaning. And surely that can't be an absolute statement. But it seems like we lose meaning in a Reformation understanding of faith. There's a crisis anyway, a crisis of meaning that yeah. people are trying to work out. And I think that's what you were referring to earlier. Uh, I mean, what are the options if you have a crisis of meaning? In other words, <laughs> if all of a sudden you're very aware that culture, as you used the word earlier, or um, there's not a singular grasp of culture, everything doesn't hold together, or um, there is no Tower of Babel experience to be had by us, I think that introduces this crisis to where you can either go one way, which says uh, we're going to double down, maybe in a, you know what ends up becoming empiricism. So we're going to only know what we can figure out, and it's a search for certainty. Or there's you know the other way you might go about that is by denying that uh, anything out there is certain, and that it's all you know sort of idealism, something like that. So I think that's what you're describing earlier. There is a crisis of meaning. And faith, maybe one way of putting it, or, uh, you know, this this quest for self-knowledge in God, um, as, as we know ourselves in God, or there's several different ways you might think about how that's overcome in Christianity. Yeah, and the danger is that we'll overcome it in the wrong way. And I think that's what's happening in what is it, integralism, or that's what's happening in radical orthodoxy, or, you know, all of these moves toward a kind of classicist understanding of, you know, oh, well, the, uh, we need to return to the pre-modern. No, I don't think, I think that, what, that we're addressing the problem and get providing a resolution in our understanding of the very dynamic of what it means to be a Christian. So it kind of maps on to, um, in some ways, I don't know if you know Owen Barfield, he has a, you know, the sort of, he has this theory of, of kind of the development of uh, language where at the same, like at the same time as Luther and all this other stuff, they make, he, he sees a shift in language towards ob objectivity and away from what he calls original participation, which you see in like the poet, like the earliest forms of language are poetic, not prosaic. And so the the same kind of move away from a participation with the world around you uh, towards a objectified sort of systemic view of language and what he sees on the horizon, because he's also a Rudolf Steiner, uh, you know, the theosophist is 
a final participation, which is not a return to the pre-modern, but is a dialectical move forwards through through objectivity and into something that I don't know does both. I'm not sure. I, I lose them at that point usually, but yeah, Lonergan calls it critical realism. Words, yeah, it's right. A, it's not a naive realism, which would be what, uh, in a way, the integralists want to force us back into a naive realism through violence. You just kill everybody who doesn't see the world the way you see it. <laughs> that handy. <laughs> so. What we're dealing, I don't, I don't mean to overstate it, but. I think the the worst form of Christian evil is is what we're encountering, maybe in this kind of maybe at a, a, a more of a you know obviously it's, it's there at an academic level level who is at R Reno at first things you know if there were anybody who was was evil incarnate that's terrible here's the guy but we I think at a popular level that's really what we're seeing in trumpism and evangelicalism it's the same impetus to return to a stasis to a reified cultural understanding which of course never existed in reality it was always a, a, a deception and so i think it is just the same lie that we're being fed and not to stretch my illustration here with abraham too far but I kind of conceived of his, part of his journey is that he would have a child through Hagar because he figures out the how, right? He's going to help God along. And of course, this is part of the faith journey, his dependence upon and then abandonment of a natural explanation is part of his growing faithfulness. Nature in faith is not definitive life's circumstance is not definitive so that faith encompasses a reality larger or in a larger you know it's comprehensive not not comprehensive but it's a larger understanding and so the note the point here is god doesn't simply trump these other realities but it uh, the faith brings a coherence and intelligibility that these things within in and of themselves intrinsically lack i think that's there in in his his faith journey and so certainly the faith of abraham is more than is it an assent to facts or even is it simply trust in a promise in other words this is campbell's debating what word to use to translate to to understand what we mean by faith and if we're thinking in terms of Abraham or Christ, what we're talking about is a, an entire life journey of faithfulness. And this then constitutes his recognition. It confirms, you know, this is where that Paul talks about that in the presence of him who believed, whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead, and calls into being that which does not exist. So Abraham, in and through his understanding of who God is in regard to creation, which is not removed from his understanding of who God is in terms of giving him a boy, <laughs> it's the same faith. It is creation, it is the capacity for creation from nothing. And of course, you don't get there, you don't get to creation ex nihilo 
or even I think to the a Christian concept of creator. Certainly there's other concepts of creator in and through creation. Now I know many apologists would want to argue with me on that because that's modern apologetics that we can, you know, get to God. I don't know that we can get to God apart from what we're describing now, apart from faith. And so God is not known or determined on the basis of the world. That didn't mean, you know, certainly the world figures in to who he is, but the world and reality are known and understood through an integrated knowledge of God. And another way of stating this is that everything is caused, right? And we can understand in things in and through a kind of causal relation, but not God. God is not caused, but he causes all things. And this is the ter determinative reality in which Abraham concludes or, or, or his faith develops. I think this is the insight provided by faith. You know, if we wanted to put it in later terminology, Abraham spent his life seeking understanding on the basis of faith. And this understanding pertains to him, to his life, his body, you know, it cut right through who he is, his marriage, his world. And so faith, I think that immediately in a justification theory, or maybe just in our common conception, our tendency is to work in abstractions. Uh, it's not a set of dogmas. And I'm not saying it, it can't pertain to dogmas. It's not a law. And this, of course, is the argument that how does law play into this? And Paul is going to say, well, actually, the faith precedes the law. And I think with the term law, we can just put propositions, dogmas, doctrines, that faith is not bound by these things. It may reference these things, you know, but it's not a doctrine. His faith pertains to the person of God. And of course, the person of God and himself are a conception that are simultaneous. The, the hard part is for a guy like myself, who has just grown up, a lot of my formative Christian years uh, was in uh, justification by faith. And, and it's all around me, too, as, as far as, you know, uh, a lot of the people um, that I go to church with and stuff like that. Sometimes it's hard to, you know, separate those waters. I, I think I, I, you know, I think I get it. Or, or I'm starting to get it. Maybe that's the better way to say it. I'm starting to get it where uh, justification by faith uh, puts it on me, right? My my faith brings salvation, whereas it's the the, the faith of Jesus. Uh, I think is isn't that what Campbell? That that's the whole point he was trying to make in that chapter. And then the the whole in then the word justification itself becomes that legal term, um, right? But every time I hear justification, you know I. You know, I don't know why it haunts me. Maybe it's because I'm fearful. Man, if I'm not justified by faith, I'm, maybe I'm damned or something. I don't, I don't know. You know, even the phrase, it's Paul's phrase, justification by faith. Nothing wrong with the phrase. It's just that in Luther, it's misconstrued. In Luther, it's the faith of the individual, correct? And and the Apostle Paul here, it's, it's the faith of Jesus. Well, Paul says both things. Okay. So uh, I think that's where I'm wrestling with it. Yeah, there's a tendency I think to overplay to play one off the other. 
So what Richard Hayes really came along and said was in these passages, Paul is saying something more than what he said in other places. So there is a uh, there is justification uh, there is faith in Christ in the New Testament in Paul's writings, but um, this particular phrase is like pistes tu Christu, that is the faith of Christ rather than whatever uh, pist I don't know Matt you know Greek better than right You're, what? uh, what's the Greek for faith it would be in pistes in I don't know anyway uh, there's uh, so in other words there's both things. It's not that the individual doesn't have faith, but it's not that your faith in Christ then um, is going to enact this transaction where now all of a sudden all your sins are taken uh, and considered to be not a problem because justification is a forensic term and God sees Christ instead of you. But it's not like the individual doesn't have faith. That's That would be, I think, to go too far. Uh Plainly, just because Paul uses that phrase, too. I think Campbell is saying that. I don't think N.T. Wright no. or Richard Hayes, I don't think they're saying that the individual doesn't have faith, but it's what is the nature of that faith that you have. I think you can do both things in Romans 4. The way I just put it, I, I'll argue with myself. Do we emulate the faith of Christ and Abraham? Well, of course we do. You know, They are our model. But can you do what they did by emulating them. No, you can only do what they did, or you can't do what they did, but you can participate. You can participate in the faith of Christ, in his death, in his resurrection. And so it's his faithfulness that we are emulating in our faith. But our faith is not, and this is where Luther goes wrong, he imagines that it's dependent upon our strength of belief. I always appeal to Zizek here. You know, he says, well, you know, in, in the uh, Buddhist prayer wheel, actually they do this in Japan too, but you take your prayer and you give it to the priest and he puts it on the prayer wheel and spins the prayer wheel and you can pray, you can go and play ping pong while you're praying. The wheel does the, the it does your faith for you. Now that's a terrible illustration. But I think we all feel the need to not let this thing simply rest on my uh, strength of belief, on my cognitive, you know, my power or strength to conjure up these things. And so certainly, you know, this is Paul Tillich, uh, not that I'm a Tillich fan, but faith embraces doubt. But I think certainly this understanding of faith, obviously, we don't have this capacity that Christ had as mere mortals. In other words, this is a gift of the Spirit. And I think that's part of the unconditional part of this. We have to do it. Yeah, we're doing it. But Christ is doing it for us. And by the way, you are doing it for me when I kind of stumble. So I think that's the sense of being in a body of believers. Some days I, I'm not there and I, you know, I have to call Matt or Jonathan and maybe they give me an encouraging word, but they're doing my believing for me on those days. And I think we're all like that. Uh, it's not as Luther thought that a, a moment of doubt cancels the grace of God in your life. So that he makes faith a work more difficult to achieve than the law itself conceived of, right? 
In fact, this is nearly an impossible. Faith becomes a near impossibility. And I think it would drive you crazy. Did drive people crazy. I shouldn't go down that route. But they've actually done studies <laughs> if you want to pursue it. No offense here, Matt. In those in the holiness parts of our churches, which I think is a very I, I like the holiness tradition, but it's also the sense that I'm gonna have to achieve this. And I think that can drive you crazy and literally has driven people in pursuit of their own holiness that they they never can quite get there. Well, Christ got there, and of course that's the, the point. And so who is Abraham? Well, Abraham is just a type of Christ, and that's the way that Paul is using him. Campbell kind of overdoes it here in the in the sense that John is talking about. And that is that can we talk about Abraham as a prototype of faith? Yeah, I think so, but if we understand what we mean by prototype, that his faith opens to him an understanding of the world. And this understanding changes the fabric of his experience. It changes his self-consciousness. It refracts back on his understanding. But what we're talking about, really, we're really talking about Christian faith that we're saying Abraham typifies. His faith, or Christian faith, launches understanding. It launches coherence, intelligibility, Meaning. I mean, I think that's what's at stake here, is meaning. And these things cannot begin elsewhere. Or at least they're going to meaning and, you know, coherent. These are going to, they're going to have, uh, they're going to be something different. And so I think that's really what's at stake in Paul's refuting of the false teacher. But also then, I think that's what's happening in Paul. I think that what we are talking about now is what the Roman Christians may have been missing out on and that Paul wants to bring to them in his gospel. This is the great value of the book of Romans, that he's going to take us on a kind of faith journey. But the way, uh, Brian, you, you pictured it quite, I like the way you pictured it, and I think it's true, that he's really beginning where they are at. And he's just, you know beginning with what they know but notice that he, the way that he begins his gospel is to say, hey, I wish I, I would like to come and share my gospel with you. You know, he wants to do that in person, but he's doing that first in the book of Romans. But he's not doing that in chapters 1 to 4. He's setting up the parameters of his gospel. He's, you know, this is step 1. But in 5, 6, 7, and 8, I think we're in the heart of Paul's gospel. He's presuming that, first of all, they've not heard his gospel. And so we can presume they don't have a complete understanding, right? If you've not heard the gospel according to Paul, do you have the fullness of the gospel? That's probably the reason this false teacher has made such inroads, because they may not have a, 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 an understanding that different than a Judaizing teacher might have. Why would they have a different understanding? That's the you know the natural understanding. Natural is the wrong word. I think it, it, it is is not unexpected. That's the explanation for three twenty three to twenty six, in which he begins to talk about the atonement. He's moving them from their reading of the work of Christ, and not to say it's just that, but it certainly is inclusive of that. And notice the phrase there in 23 to 26, 
in which there is seems to be a focus in this understanding on atonement for the sake of release from previously committed transgressions. That's not untrue, but in you know as, as far as it goes, but it doesn't go very far, right? And Paul is beginning with what their understanding is. And so they may be so focused on the efficacy of Christ's death, and here, by the way, justification theory, that's, of course, the problem in justification theory, is the entire focus falls on the death of Christ. And there really is no room for the resurrection. In justification theory, I don't know that the resurrection... You know, the res- resurrection doesn't really figure into atonement. And yet in Paul's gospel, notice that's where he began in Romans, with the resurrection, and that's what he's going to emphasize. But we're inclined not to see that if we've bought into justification theory. But I think the Romans may also be there, that they so f- are so focused on the death of Christ that they failed to consider the way in which the resurrection in which there is the defeat of death, you know, even the ascension, Paul's going to focus, like he did in Ephesians, on the ascension of Christ as the defeat of the powers. That's what is taking place in the unfolding, that he's building a case. They may simply believe Christ has replaced what the temple did. Maybe the false teacher believed. Maybe they all believe that. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not simply what Christ has done. That is, they they may not have perceived the cosmic implications, the resurrection implication. As Campbell writes, Christ's death functions for them more as an apparent replacement of the temple cultus, which cleanses or wipes various individual transgressions from the relevant worshipers and their consciences. That's not an untrue statement. Hebrews has a similar statement, you know, Hebrews 9.11. There is this cleansing of the conscience, but there is no further role in this understanding for the resurrection to play. And so maybe they see the resurrection, oh, that's our future vindication. I'm wondering if we could just for pause in this little stroll, actually this journey through Abraham's viewpoint, and talk a little, little bit about righteousness. I want to come up with a word that turns righteousness into a verb and not a now but i can't think of any all you guys who've read nt right have the word right wising things ain't right and god in christ is making things right is that he says he's putting the world to rights yes yes in his in his british british way of saying things david this is speaks to your point justification is a perfectly good word it's it's there throughout but i think if we tie it justification the point is it has nothing to do with the law So what is it? That Christ is the righteousness of God revealed. That's where that's the the presumed thesis statement of the book of Romans. Maybe it is a, a, a good thesis statement. If we understand, Paul is going to redefine perhaps what is the common understanding of righteousness. And of course, he appeals to the book of Habakkuk. And is it Habakkuk? They taught talk about God, things ain't right. We're like fish. We're like meat on hooks. Our enemies are slaughtering us. In other words, the world is is not right. When are you going to make things right? That gets at righteousness. Maybe the our word just maybe it just gives us the wrong feeling because we're all thinking legal. 
legal righteousness. Paul's argument is this has nothing to do with the law. And so faith, uh, justification by faith, made righteous by faith. Of course, that's correct. But righteousness or justification is things are made right that were wrong. What's wrong? Well, in Habakkuk, it's the violence of their enemies. It's death and destruction. But that's what's wrong everywhere, and that's what's being made right. So Christ is the righteousness of God revealed. Here's the way in which things are being made right. Beverly Gavinta translates 322 as the rectification of God has been made manifest through Jesus Christ, faith for everyone who believes. Therefore, since we have been rectified on the basis of faith, let us enjoy the peace we have before God. So you could use right. I think David Bentley Hart uses vindicated. Mm -hmm. She's using rectified. I was going to say it's funny because I've, I know that from Wright. I, I mean, I probably read 15 books of Wright, and Wright will say that in every one of those books. So, <laughs> so they seem to have missed what we've missed, that sin is not simply breaking laws. In fact, I, you can talk it about it that way, but it is an orientation. The way that I've tried to sum up what I think Paul is saying is that it's an orientation, a misorientation to the law. Or to say it in another way, it's a misorientation to death due to the law. And that's what's described in chapter 7, that Christ has defeated death and you know through his death and resurrection, but he has also then undone this lie, this deception, this misorientation, that it's not a law problem per se, in other words, not that the law is intrinsically something wrong with it. Law is perfectly holy, just, and good for what it was meant to do. But what was it meant to do? Was it meant to reveal to us the righteousness of God? If we say that, we're displacing Christ. Justification theory displaces Christ. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.